You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. song means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. The host will be in just a few minutes. I'm looking out the window and she usually says bright, beautiful, sunny day here, but it's actually cloudy today. Partly cloudy this afternoon, going up to a high of 59 degrees after a week of rainfall and looking at another weekend of rainfall. Um, Classic atmospheric river storm aimed straight at north central and uh, the northern part of California last week dropped Five and a half inches of rain in the Vacaville area, which is about 10 miles from where I live. Three inches in Davis. Rainfall totals around the area from that series of, well, two or three days straight of essentially rainfall. Uh, anywhere from two to five inches all around uh, Lake Berryessa in the Bay Area. Dropping down as we got into the valley to maybe a couple inches, but a good wet and relatively warm rainstorm. Next one coming in, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Today is Thursday, December 5th. Cloudy tonight going up to uh, uh, dropping down to 46 degrees. Didn't even get below 50 last night. We had a frost a week ago. Didn't even get below 50 last night. Friday, 61 degrees and rain. Friday night, Uh, 52 degrees and rain and breezy, by which they mean uh, gusts as high as 39 miles an hour. That's the Weather Service's definition of breezy for the Sacramento Valley. Saturday, 100% chance of rain, 60 degrees, and it will also be uh, thunderstorms after 10 a.m., high around 60, south wind around 18 miles an hour, with gusts as high as 28 100% chance of precipitation during the day on Saturday. They've scaled this back a little bit. It's pushing forward, I guess I should say. So most of the rain Saturday and Saturday night. Rain again Saturday night, 48 degrees, the low on Saturday night. And 90% chance of precipitation and just showers likely on Sunday, mostly before 10 a.m. And then finally... Clouds clearing, sunny skies, slight chance of showers Sunday night, dropping down to 42. Monday, sunny, 58 degrees. And let's see what the extended forecast is. Tuesday, partly sunny, 55. Wednesday, partly sunny, 58. Slight chance of showers Tuesday night. Night's finally dropping down around 40. We've had one pretty significant visible frost so far this season. And the nights have been unusually warm. This is a, These are warm storms that are coming in, giving lots and lots of rainfall in the reservoirs. We're in good shape around the northern part of the state, at least. Um, one thing, though, about this kind of rain is that it's 
day after day. And so we're getting into some flower mold problems, which we can talk about a little bit later in the program. Really saturated the soil well and uh, now beginning to run off in the traditional places like the county road right near my house. Uh, So we're getting a bit of regional flooding going because we had so much rain all at once. I wanted to real quickly thank all of you that uh, participated and donated during the KDRT LP fall fundraiser. We met our goal. Thanks to listeners like you. You can still donate. If you like listening to the Davis Garden Show, just go to kdrt.org. That's kdrt.org and look for the donate button. There are still some premium gifts based on whatever amount you choose to give. Again, thank you all for those who donated and for listening to KDRT Davis, California. Uh, whole kinds of things to talk about. Let me click on the Arboretum website and see if they've got an event, anything happening right this time of year. Not real common now, but yes, December 11th. Join Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, famous storyteller and punster, for an always engaging noontime exploration of fall in the UC Davis Arboretum Gardens and Collections. December 11th is the next Wednesday walk with Warren, noon to one, and you meet at the Arboretum Gazebo. For information, go to Arboretum. .ucdavis.edu, you'll find a map and what they call event details. And of course, the folk music jam sessions continue December 13th, December 27th, every two weeks at the uh, Wyatt Deck next to the Redwood Grove in the Arboretum. Hello there. And on uh, January 25th, you might want to mark your calendar because I'm doing those bird talks again. Lois is here. well, yeah, of course Lois is here. It's, Hello, Lois. I'm, I'm healthy again. Thank okay. you. <laughs> yes, welcome. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, so uh, Saturday is the indoor slideshow, 10.30 a.m. and Sunday. What was, what was that date? The 25th of January. I'm Let's giving you advance see. notice. Uh, what day of the week is that? Saturday, okay. inside, Sunday, outside. Okay. Rain or shine? Yes. You'll wander around in the rain like a bird if you have to. <laughs> well, Saturday we're inside. doesn't matter if it rains yeah. or shines. Yeah. Sunday we're outside. And if it's too wet, you know, I, I don't believe that, that any... <laughs> let me put it this way. I once did this talk at, inside, and then afterwards there, the people wanted to go birding. Yeah. It was pouring, drenching birders, you know? I know rain. Birders. And they said, hey, there's birds out there. That's we right. can go there's look. birds in the rain. They've got feathers. So got we'll coats. see how that goes. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, this, this rainfall pattern has been interesting. I mean, we went from way below. I mean, when we've had no rain the month of October, mm-hmm. no rain for the first uh, 24 days of November, we were, to put it mildly behind, now we're above average. In, in one rainstorm, well, one series of rainstorms, we're above average. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're caught up rather quickly. The atmospheric river concept is gaining currency amongst climate scientists. In fact, I was just reading, we'll talk about this more another time, yeah. just reading a link to an article from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which I always have a fondness for because that's where both of my parents worked. And there's a climate science division down there. They're working up a, a rating system for atmospheric rivers. Mm-hmm. They're going mm-hmm. to give them numbers, much Three as hurricanes and tornadoes are given these degrees of severity. And it will reflect the uh, um, duration and intensity of the rainfall. Because these are, we now realize, or I should say they're, they're concluding, that the number of atmospheric rivers that we get, atmospheric river storms that we get in a particular rainfall season, October through uh, basically March, is what determines whether we have a wet year or a dry year. Mm-hmm. El Nino and La Nina, which we've talked about a lot, are sort of the overriding energy part of the equation. But it's those storms, where they hit and how much they carry, that really pack the punch. And a very small number of atmospheric river storms can make a big difference in whether or not we're on a dry year or a wet year. As we know, if you've lived here for any amount of time, a whole lot of rain can come down 
all at once. And some of those can result in serious flooding. Others just get everything really, really wet and soak in and give a nice snowpack in the mountains. And if we don't get very many, well, that's the beginning of a drought. So I want to just talk about this atmospheric river concept. <laughs> this is a new description of an existing phenomenon. Of course, this, is, yeah. this isn't something new. No, these, haven't, these have is, always been these happening. These have always been yes. happening. I mean, we used to call it the Pineapple Express. That's one type of atmospheric yeah. river, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and people would talk about the jet stream, which is not the same thing, but nope. it's, it's, it's the, way, the pattern in which uh, the air above us moves. So don't go thinking that atmospheric rivers are new. No, They're the just newly new. described. And there was a, a very pretty graphic on the article that uh, my, my husband pointed out to me, which has beautiful patterns, <laughs> and it shows in They're colors yes. what's happening. And there was this one pointed straight at us, so yeah. we've got more It comments. hit us. Yeah, no, this if you look at the rainfall totals, if you want to go to a Great Link and you're anywhere in California, uh, the uh, California Nevada River Forecast Center. California Nevada River Forecast Center. Uh, you'll click on an option there that you can look back and go how much rain we got in the last 24, 48, 72, all the way up to about 10 days worth for weather stations all over. And they're color-coded. This one really hit basically the Bay Area, somewhat north of it, and us. And that's been the pattern. So uh, all kinds of questions came our way. I thought I'd throw some papers at you first. Uh, okay. So I'll give you those. And, and throw me a pen, too. The, um, uh, my article in the Davis Enterprise that was this week, ran after Thanksgiving, was about pie. Pie? Pie, yes. A as, in, a, as in pie r squared? As, a, as in a gardener's view of pie and oh, what, pie kind, of, what kind of apples you use in pie uh -huh. and whether they grow here and things like that and why it's kind of funny to say the phrase, American is apple pie considering that apples aren't American and neither is apple pie. But good starting point for the conversation. And if you're interested in growing apples and you're living anywhere where it gets reasonably cold in the winter, you have many options. If you're living where it doesn't get that cold in the winter, you have fewer options. Uh, my parents grew an apple tree in coastal San Diego. I mentioned they were both amazing. from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. That's right near UC San Diego. They get 50 chilling hours in a normal year, less than 100. Some years even less than 50. Apples in general need at least 500, 800, 1,000, 1,200 chilling hours. My poor father, for some reason, wanted to keep planting apricots and peaches and things like that. When things he was that growing, need chill. When he was growing in subtropical La Jolla, coastal San Diego, and they never worked. Uh, finally, they found one. It's called Beverly Hills. So if you're listening. The and apple? The apple. It's called uh -huh. Beverly Hills. If you're listening in, in coastal Southern California, it was a very heavy producer. Year after year, mom got, you know, 100, 200 apples from it, more than that. I wouldn't say it's the best apple you've ever tasted. I wouldn't even put it up above about five or six on a scale of 10, but it was an apple and it was growing in her backyard and she didn't get worms in it. That's a plus because there were so few apples in the area that nobody had coddling moth and she made a lot of applesauce out of it. So there are apples that you can grow even in Southern California. Uh, as you read through the article, if you happen to go to the Davis Enterprise site and it'll be linked on my business website reasonably soon, the ones that I mentioned that we can grow here uh, that would be possible candidates for pie apples would include Fuji, which has become incredibly popular. And you can grow that in the Bay Area as well. It only needs a few hundred chilling hours. It's not very tart, though. No, it's sweet. It's, and this yeah. is the thing. You go to, to expert websites like you know James Beard Foundation and others, they'll tell you you want a balance of sweet and tart, and you want an apple with enough firmness that it'll cook without turning to mush in the pie. <laughs> so you want a fairly, you don't want a, a soft apple, and you want one that's got some oomph yeah. to you it. You don't want the deliciouses. Yeah, yeah. 
there's not much use for those, honestly. The one, <laughs> the one that's really stuck out of, of some of the newer apples is Pink Lady, mm-hmm. which is becoming very popular because it's kind of a balance of sweet and tart, and it's got a good firm texture, and it only needs about 400 chilling hours. So we can grow that very easily here in the valley and even in the East Bay or parts of the Bay Area and interior Southern California. You might be able to grow Pink Lady. That's a trade name, trademark name on the apple itself. The apple you're looking for is now sold under the name Pink Lady, but it's originally called Crips Pink. And they're, oh, is they're, that the same thing? That's the same oh. thing. Well, if you take that apple and you select out the brighter, larger, prettier ones, those are sold as Pink Lady under the trademark name. Uh-huh. If it's smaller and variable color, they sell them as Crips Pink. It's the same apple. Okay, just off so, the you know, same tree. Off the same tree in some cases, yes. Huh. Or, the same, or they're grown rather carefully in some regions so that they live up to the trademark name um, minimum standards, you might say. There's a lot of this marketing going on with apples right now because they found that they can make a little bit of a buzz around a particular apple just mm-hmm. by making sure it's higher quality or brighter red or whatever it is. The or public. giving it a new name. Mm-hmm. Like that one. Uh, the jazz apple is another one. You can't buy those trees, by the way. Those are licensed trees. You can't go to a nursery and buy a jazz apple tree, but you you can buy a Pink Lady, and now they're selling them under the name Pink Lady just because of this marketing confusion. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, we get this question every year. Can, I just had the best apple I ever had. Can you get it? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. Honeycrisp, for example. Yes, you can buy Honeycrisp. The patent on that tree wore off a while ago. Made a lot of money for the University of Minnesota before it did. And then uh, now you can buy it and grow them yourself. But it needs... 900 chilling hours. Well, in Minnesota, you would expect that, wouldn't we you? We get that here most years, <laughs> but not always. And mm-hmm. so it's one that first came on the market as being available to nurseries. We, we sold it on demand, but mm-hmm. it was one of those things where I told people, there's going to be years where you're not going to get any fruit because we won't get enough chilling for this. Mm. They bought it anyway. And I said, just if this is the only apple in your yard, just prepare for some disappointing seasons, perhaps increasingly as time goes by. And what about the, the traditional ones that I'm used to using for pies, like a pippin and Pippin. Granny Smith. Yeah, that was my mother's pie apple, Newton Pippin, and that's an old heirloom. Oh, American. It is an American apple. It's a seedling apple that originated in, in the U.S., in Long Island, in the 1700s. That was mom's classic baking mm-hmm. apple. Uh, you, can, you can buy them. You can find them. That one, I have one. I've had it for 30 years. It has never fruited. Uh-oh. Needs about 1,300 chilling hours. Oh, it'll never do it We there. don't get that. No. We don't quite get there. No, we don't get it. So it's and a granny, lovely tree. It doesn't even flower. It doesn't even fruit. We'll get granny into that Smith? in a minute. Granny Smith, you can. Yes, Granny Smith grows here. Oh. Really, the best apples for this region are, are Fuji, Braeburn, Anders, Gravenstein, if you like that style of apple, and the old standby Golden Delicious, which grows literally anywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. All those do grow reasonably well, both in the valley and over in the coastal parts of California. And that is our pie talk That's for right. today. That's right. And Jim's uh, joke is pie are squared. No, 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 no. Pie are round. Cornbread are square. Oh, Lord. <laughs> what? I also mentioned strawberry <laughs> rhubarb and a few other kinds of pie. You know, if you wanted actually an American yeah. pie, pecan pie. That's classic American. Pecans are and native. Rhubarb. Pecan, rhubarb are not native to America. Pecans are native to the southeast and Mexico. Rhubarb came to us through Europe from Asia. It is not an American native plant. But rhubarb pie is. Strawberry rhubarb pie is something you will probably never find outside classic the Midwest. Classic English dish. You're demonstrating your Anglo roots mm. or your German roots, whatever. Okay. <laughs> I, I just like potlucks in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, it, it's December, Don. Correct. We've got to have bare root Susan 
pretty soon. What about blueberries and rhubarb and asparagus? And Speaking of rhubarb, yes, it just arrived at my nursery. Rhubarb is one of those things. Now, I, it confuses people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a tree. Mm-mm. It's the stem of a perennial. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a stalk. very tasty when it first flushes out in the spring because the oxalic acid content is fairly low and it's still very tart. That's what you like it for, mm-hmm. the, the acidity. And you balance it with, say, strawberries in a pie or, or you add extra sugar and you, you do all kinds of things. But you never just eat rhubarb raw like that. Uh, um, he doesn't. I do. You eat raw rhubarb? Well, we grew up in backwoods Michigan, man. <laughs> and when the rhubarb plants started coming out, you'd go out and you'd yank a stalk okay, well, off of it. You'd have a paper bag full of sugar and you'd dip oh, it I Adding sugar, all right. And early in the season, early in the season, it's mild enough flavored. Um, Now, there's a lot of concern about rhubarb because uh, the leaves are toxic. I mean, it takes a lot of leaf to make Mm -hmm. you sick. They during World War One in. In England, they ate a lot of rhubarb leaves, and they got sick from it. But they did, and they didn't die. I mean, it's a, a classic case of the dose makes the poison. But it's the stem that we're eating. Mm-hmm. And, and it that's is, not toxic. And, not, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it gets more harsh flavored as the mm-hmm. season goes along, so you want it early. Uh, rhubarb is something you plant easily here. It uh, grows typically, my experience, is three to five years. And they tend to rot out if you aren't careful with your watering. Mm-hmm. Whereas, where you came from... It was everywhere. It mm-hmm. grew in the, I don't know if you're going out and gathering it in the wild or whether someone had oh, actually no. planted you all, it. But you uh, always grew rhubarb. Now, it, asparagus you yes. gathered in the wild because <laughs> the seeds would, would s- settle where the birds had them a- along the fence rows. Yes. And yeah. then, of course, underneath the fence row, you can't dig. Right. So. so there they are. There so they are. There's your asparagus. Yeah. Uh, rhubarb is something that comes in in the late fall, early winter to a lot of garden centers. And then they pot them up because they tend to push out very quickly when they mm-hmm. come in. In fact, that little fact of them pushing out quickly was the basis of an entire industry in England where they would take rhubarb, dig up the clumps from the field, move them into forcing sheds, which mm-hmm. were just dark sheds where they would work by candlelight so as not to disrupt the plants. And the heat would cause them to grow, but they would be, here's your word for the day, etiolated, which means lacking chlorophyll. White. They're Basically, white. not quite, but very mm-hmm. pale. And it made mm-hmm. the red stems redder. And it made the flavor milder and the stems more tender. Mm-hmm. And they would do this in the fall so that they would get them flushing up just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And they would ship those at great cost to London and Paris for the holiday season. There's a little triangle of England called the rhubarb triangle where a whole rail line was put in just to accommodate this massive production of rhubarb, which continued to blow, almost to World War II mm-hmm. and then finally died out. The idea being it's a temperature-related trigger to sprout and, bl- and grow. Here, that happens in about February. Our experience as nursery people is it happens as soon as the plants arrive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come in, they're dormant, we just pot them right away. So you're generally buying them in containers. Very easy to grow, but they need good drainage. And when I say that, um, I realize that's one of those bits of horticultural jargon that not everyone really understands. What I mean by that is water should not stand or collect around the crown of the plant really ever. Or it the roots also, in, in rhubarb Right, case. they need to be up, up, mm-hmm. up. And this goes for asparagus too, a good mm-hmm. reason to discuss this now because asparagus has also just come in. I have asparagus plants on my farm that are 30 plus years in the mm-hmm. ground and they produce fine year after year. That same bed is graded down from elevated to level. Mm-hmm. And after about five or 10 years, the level part 
all rotted out after a wet winter. The elevated part, still there producing to this day because water always percolates away from the crown of the plant, even in heavy rainfall periods, collects nearby where I channeled it off to and never stands around the plant. Mm -hmm. So that has kept them with good drainage. That's what good drainage means because here we have clay loam soils or silty loam soils in the area. People think none of our soil has good drainage because of the density, but it's drainage is a function of the water just not standing right around the crown. Yeah. the water's thing. moving away, you, away, you yeah. should be okay. I mean, and and that's w- true of blueberry, blueberries, too. You don't want them yeah. to be they, their crown down. People are doing very well with blueberries in, mm-hmm. in Davis area, which would surprise would have surprised people 20, 30 years ago with our very hard water and mm-hmm. the high mineral content. The pH is still high, but people are doing very well. Part of it is new varieties of blueberries that are very adaptable. Mm-hmm. Southern high bush, not the kind you grew up with, but these, mm-hmm. these uh, more adaptable, heat-tolerant blueberries. Lower chilling hours, we just discussed that. Your, your, kind, most your kind of blueberries needed 1,800 to 1,000 chilling hours. Yeah. We can grow them here, but just barely. Yeah. The southern high bush, there's one called Sunshine Blue. You, they're growing at San Diego. I mean, you can grow it all the way. It only needs 100 chilling hours. It, it doesn't and have as strong a flavor. It's, it's sweeter. I mean, people it's say milder. that. Now, one thing I've found, I'm now, I've been growing blueberries for about three years, and I have mm-hmm. several kinds. The stage you pick it at makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can pick them if you want more rich flavor. Just pick them a little tartar. If they get some of them are sweeter and softer, they vary in texture. That's another factor. But the sunshine blue is very productive everywhere. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening, almost anywhere you can grow that one, and you should plant another one with it just because cross pollination improves the yield. Otherwise, they're actually proving to be surprisingly easy to grow. And considering what you see when you look up blueberries mm-hmm. about needing a pH down at a level that we can't even begin to achieve here. And needing all this organic soil and stuff like that. They're not that fussy. But I have done best with them, and my recommendation is in large containers. Right, because you can control it. Yeah, put them in nice. I use azalea mix with some bark and stuff added. I mulch them each year as we start getting into the hot weather. In the containers, yes, mulch containers, it works. I'm mulching them with compost. I use only organic fertilizers, and the reason for that isn't just for a philosophical reason. It's because they're very sensitive to salts. They can so, burn. But yes, if you oh, take yeah. a Conventional like miracle grow type fertilizer, you'll get leaf burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd almost guarantee mm-hmm. it. Whereas an organic fertilizer will break down at a steadier rate and be available to them in a, in a more moderate manner. They're just never drought tolerant. That's really the key thing with, with blueberries. If they get drought stress, the leaves burn badly. Mm-hmm. The plants struggle. So a miner on a micro spray system, but drip works fine. Hand watering, if you remember. And uh, they will get root bound pretty quickly, but that's okay. Just keep mulching them and keep watering them. I water about two to three times times a week with the micro spray system. When I first plant them, I always plant strawberries in the same pot with them. That's worked great. I get strawberries for a year or two, and then by then the blueberries are out competing them and the strawberries are done. Uh, and they're doing quite well that way. So full sun. This, is, this one always surprises people. Mine are in full sun. Mm-hmm. I experimented. I put a couple down in more shade. Mm-hmm. They also produce, but not as well. The ones in sun produce more. And it uh, doesn't seem to stress them as long as they get plenty of water. So. And it doesn't seem to affect the, the flavor. Nope. nope. The flavor difference is, is, is minor there. Yep. So we've talked about blueberries and rhubarb and asparagus, but you have two other things here <laughs> on the arriving. What I even write down? Horseradish. Yes, you can grow horseradish. You, well, you can grow it any time. Is that a, a crowned up thing it's again? A, it's a rhizome plant. Yeah, oh, no, it'll grow anywhere. Uh, the only issue with horseradish is that you'll never be rid of it, and you probably won't use as much as you think. Yeah. But it's really, really easy to grow. And horseradish <laughs> roots are huge. They are large. My you know mother, why they're called horseradish? I know. Horse why. as in giant. <laughs> But radish as in root. Is that why? 
Yeah, I didn't know horseradishes. That. It's a peppery, it's, pungent. It's a, yep. Uh, my mother used to grow it and process it. She liked to do that kind of thing. She planted one plant. It filled a bed about eight by eight. I remember that. She would dig it up and rinse them and learn to process it out on the patio. Mm-hmm. She'd run an extension cord out to the patio table, run it through the blender out there mm-hmm. because it's so pungent. Very, we used, very we used easy to, to grate grow. them by hand yeah, with these. Fun. Yeah. And boy, you could cry. Talk about <laughs> onion crying. No, no, no. Horseradish crying. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy to grow. And, and then the last thing that's coming in are various berries, cane, yeah. cane berries, cane like berries, blackberries, yeah. raspberries. That's a term we use in the yeah. trade, and I, again, I realize it's jargon. It's not something that most pe- most sense. people say, but they grow canes, and it's an easy way to think about them. Yeah. Yes, blackberry, boysenberry, loganberry, salmonberry, uh, thimbleberry. Yeah, of course, most places don't sell those last two, but, yeah. uh, but anything in that group, they're all related. These are all members, generally, of the genus Rubus which is an important, actually, North American plant. They're all over the northern latitudes, actually. And uh, some of them are actually American. The one you see in campgrounds all is over not. is not. It's uh, also not a, a native species anywhere. It's the Himalayan blackberry, but it's not from the Himalayas. It's a cultivar that was introduced probably 100 years ago. It's highly invasive. Okay. Quite delicious. I mean, I have them on my property, and we do harvest them. They're rather seedy, and they're very tasty, but it, it's one that's very, very hard to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're taking over from the from the native they're crowd, Yeah, they'll yeah. crowd out the native yeah. members of the genus quite readily. In this area, here in the Sacramento Valley, and anywhere that is hot and dry, we mainly sell blackberries, boysenberries, and things like those. Mm-hmm. Raspberries, everybody wants them. People who move here from northern states especially want to grow them. I've done it. I've tried it. They don't like the dry heat. And so generally speaking, well, they grow fine. They don't yield well. Every and, now and, then and they don't last very long. I mean, a few years yeah. and you can't find them anymore. They kind of fizzle out. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's, a, there's, there's two hybrids that were created by crossing a blackberry and a raspberry. And one of them is more like a blackberry, and one of them is more like a raspberry. Which the, is which? The Loganberry is a cross mm-hmm. between a blackberry and a raspberry that's more like a blackberry. It's like a tangy, sweet blackberry. It is. We sell it as a blackberry because you wouldn't know the difference. The Tayberry, T-A-Y, Tayberry, is the same cross between a blackberry and a raspberry that's more like a raspberry. And I've grown them, finally, planted some, got some producing. They yield okay, better than any raspberry ever has. And they're like a raspberry. They detach from the stem the way a raspberry does. They have the crumbly uh, little berry parts like Mm -hmm. a raspberry does, and they have the flavor of a raspberry. All sweet, no tart. And so if you really like a raspberry and you want one that wants something like that for the interior parts of California, Tayberry is the one you'd want to look for. People keep coming in asking about heat-tolerant raspberries. They've read about them. I've grown them all. Mm-hmm. They aren't. Oh, mm-hmm. That's my summary. <laughs> that's, I've grown them all. They yield okay sometimes, and they they dry out. And if it's real hot when their fruit is developing, by hot I mean in the 90s, doesn't develop properly. The tayberry grows just like a blackberry, but tastes like a raspberry. Okay, question on that one. Yes. Um, tayberry. I love raspberries. Mm-hmm. Tayberry. Can it grow in my yard? Yeah, with they can, only two hours. They can of take shade. They'll, they won't yield as well in the shade as in the sun, but they will. And here's the thing I've found with mine. I've done berries four times now on my property. Remember that I live on a farm with 13 acres. The first three times were a mistake. I planted them in the ground. 
And I told myself, or we all told ourselves, oh, yes, we'll tie them up on those things. Oh, we'll sure con- you will. We'll confine them. We'll do and now all- he has lots of habitat for the birds. Yeah, one of them I finally, when a tractor came in, I finally got rid of that. After 20-plus years, I managed to get them to rip it all out, and now I'm just digging out the remains. One area just became a solid thicket. And, mm-hmm. well, I enjoyed picking from the margins. Uh, that was the best I could do. The songbirds loved it. The, ground, mm-hmm. the field birds love it. And the quail. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it's a great habitat. Chicago. So Chicago. now I plant berries, each group of three plants, say, in a half barrel or mm-hmm. a, or a mm-hmm. pot the size of a half barrel. They're right near the blueberries, actually. And that's worked well because they can sprawl out if they want to, pull them up, tie them up on the stake, control them that way, go in and prune out the ones that are done fruiting. In each case, as I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when someone asked about this, each case the cane has gone out the side of the barrel onto the ground and rooted before I caught it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you watch for that, but at least it's easier to control you than what... You put it on your patio where it's concrete. Right. or you could watch it more carefully, but mm-hmm. uh, it's a lot easier to manage than if, for example, you've just planted them in a row out in the land, out in the farm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, so berries and berries and berries and berries. Yep, things coming in now to garden centers in California. Okay, here's yeah. a note from James. Uh, yes. Dear Don and Lois, thanks for all the great gardening guidance. I have a couple of questions. Okay. One, are there general guidelines or resources for knowing when and how to cut back woody perennials like salvias, bush monkey flower, and lavender without damaging? There is a ro- old rule of thumb I learned many years ago, and I have applied this consistently, uh, which is to try not to cut back more than about 25% at any one time on those that you mentioned. Salvias, we're talking about the autumn sage or the ones that are shrubs that bloom rather than what we call herbaceous salvias, which when they're done blooming, you can they cut them to the ground. Yeah. You can cut them all the way down. So salvia gregii, salvia microphylla, autumn sage, um, many of the ones that essentially form a permanent shrub in the landscape but can get kind of lanky. Mm-hmm. And you want to know how hard to cut them back. That rule I have followed up to a point. Same with lavender, a good rule of thumb generally. If you ever watch um, videos of how they harvest lavender, they're using a machine in many cases that essentially prunes off all the flowers and prunes the plant at the same time to a sort of a round hedge. They're taking off about 15 to 25% of the plant at any given time. That way you're cutting into soft wood rather than into hard wood. Mm-hmm. And the point of that being, now this is not true for everything, but it's a good rule of thumb. If you're cutting into soft wood, there's a bud there that's just going to break and grow right away. Mm-hmm. You're cutting to something that will try to grow almost immediately. If you're cutting down into semi-hard wood, well, there's probably still buds there, and very likely it will. So if you cut 10, 15, 25%, you're probably cutting into semi-hard wood. You're still okay. Cut down into hardwood, plants vary as to whether there are still viable buds down there. Mm-hmm. If you cut a lavender down into hardwood, sometimes it sprouts, sometimes it dies. That's the risk you take. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a big risk, you know. It's, and sometimes when you've gotten a plant that's sprawled all over and looking leggy and not very attractive, it might be a risk worth taking. Mm-hmm. But it is the risk you're taking. that There just isn't a bud ready to grow in time to sustain the root system. The plant just dies at that point. So cutting into green wood or semi-hardwood, which usually means about maybe 25%. And the only other aspect I'd give is I generally do that in mild weather. Mm -hmm. So fall, in this area, that means November. Or spring, March. In this area, that means... March is great because you're ready to grow. Mm -hmm. March means you cut it back, it'll just grow back right away. So So that's if you're going to, if you're cutting all the whole bush just to make it from, from... Four-foot size to a three-foot yeah, size or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But right. if you're looking at it and going, oh, 
there's too many stems in there. I really want to thin it out. I don't want so many things. Like like when you do roses and you mm-hmm. take out the crossing ones, and you can actually go down and take out an entire sure. an entire stem. Yep. But know that that stem's gone, yep. and, and you, you're, you, it's not going to get replaced. But new, the branch but, nearby might well fill that in. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, so that's I, an option. Is light pruning steadily is actually a better right? way to go in some right. cases. Yeah. And then occasionally for renovation, if you've got something young coming mm-hmm. out in the middle, and you got some really old, yep. decrepit things, you can take out the old ones oh, and I'm leave gonna, the young ones. Yeah, I'm going to move in. on to one of the breaking the rules segments here at the uh, Davis Garden Show. Breaking okay. the rules. Yeah. Um, about 20 years ago, I get my field mowed each spring by a guy with a tractor and, um, he mows the whole thing as carefully as he possibly can, mm-hmm. but there's drip lines out there. He hits them. There's, you know, plants that I didn't mean mm-hmm. for him to hit. He hits them. And one year he took out several salvia, Gregii that had been planted for two, three, four years. Actually, they'd gotten pretty woody, took them down to about six inches with oh, his mower. My. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just have to replace those. You know, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. He always felt horrible about these things. I'm so sorry. I said, don't just please don't worry about it. You're mowing the mustard. You're making it possible for me to garden. No concern, okay? Mm-hmm. They came back beautifully. They rejuvenated yeah. them fantastically. He cut them to about six inches from the ground rather um, uh, haphazardly, <laughs> to put it mildly. And it was right in the spring. You know, he probably did it in April, which is I try to get him in sometime around then. And they came back great. Mm-hmm. So having been through that experience, Salvia gregii in particular, it was one of the, the early sages, ornamental sages that came on the market, blooms in the fall, called autumn sage. Uh, it takes very well to an occasional hard pruning. There's a slight risk that it will die at that point. Mm-hmm. More typically, it sprouts very nicely. Salvia microphylla, which is very similar, looks it's hard mm-hmm. to tell them apart, almost always has more bushiness at the base to begin with. And so it's definitely something you can do to those. Mm-hmm. And many of these modern hybrid sages are crosses between those two species one way or another. And so I found that, yeah, you can, if the weather is mild and you're pruning and you cut that back to six inches to a foot, no big deal. I probably wouldn't do that with a lab lavender that I no. cared about. The lavender but, died. Yeah. It, 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 sometimes <laughs> it comes back, usually not. But here's the thing about lavender. They they tend to have a lifespan anyway. That's so true. I hope that was a good answer to your question there, James. Next. That was the first question. His yep. second question is, is there a good way to approach the problem of bringing a garden that has been planted haphazardly, containing individual planting stuck in here and there with little planning or forethought? <laughs> I think Lois and I know all about this. <laughs> <laughs> into a more orderly and pleasing arrangement. That's I like meadows and semi-wild gardens, but would like to work towards something a bit more harmonious. Well, that's what one thing that landscape designers can help you with. I mean, if you know someone in your area who's a designer, just maybe pay for a consultation. I will say this, though. That's what nurseries do. That's what we do at garden centers. I used to talk to, there was a Hort Club on campus that I would go talk to. I would begin the talk generally by saying, most of the things we do devolve down to two questions. I have this plant, has a problem, I want to know what it is, whatever, or I have this place that I need plants for, and I need help with selecting mm-hmm. plants for that. And he has and, both. And we, yes, and in the case of the I have this place, that's exactly what we're doing. It's called Plant Selection for Environmental Design, was the name of one class I took. That was its literal name, because that's what you're doing. And you're selecting plants that are complementary for texture and color. So just one thing that I learned long ago, once you've planted the things you like, 
and you've found some perennials that work, and you've got them scattered about. A little regrouping can be very appropriate. I had a so whole plant more of the thing uh, you or, really like over or move there. Them, move them, yeah. move them around. I mean, I had I had been collecting daylilies for a while, and I had one here and there, and they were a little haphazard. So finally, I just took all the different daylilies and grouped them into more. So or you less, dug like, them up and yes, planted moved them. them, moved and, them, and, near and you each do that other. in the winter. Yeah, fall is usually best or early spring, depending mm-hmm. on what it is. So that's the one thing: a little regrouping. The other is look closely at texture, leaf texture probably makes more difference than anything in making mm-hmm. your yard look harmonious because you can use gray soft leaves to contrast with big shiny leaves. You can use grassy foliage, but be careful about that because it's kind of busy looking and so forth. Mm-hmm. And repetition is one real principle of design that you'll find very helpful. If there's one plant that gives you a long season of bloom and has a nice leaf and uh, a texture that goes with the color of the flower, and you know, just repeat that. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example would be stigma, dwarf plumbago. You know, there's nothing exciting about it, but it's dark blue. It's reliable. It gives fall color when the foliage turns red, and it grows almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. So if you've already got some, simply dividing that up and spreading it along a whole border with taller plants behind it is a really simple way to bring some order to it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you could take pictures and go into a good garden center, and that's what we do. We look at those pictures with people. I just did this this morning. Here's a place in my courtyard. I'm looking for plants to fill this. What do you suggest? Well, mm-hmm. that's what we do. That's what we do for a living. But obviously, uh, we're helping you make up your mind about your own preferences. I know that's a funny way to put it, but we're helping you make decisions as much as an interior designer would. I will say also that blue and white and gray are colors that lead to balance and and cohesion across the landscape, whereas yellow and orange and red sort of jump out at you, so you use them for impact. Mm -hmm. So repeating blue, gray, and white and then spots of yellow, orange, and red. And pink, of course, is intermediate and so forth. Uh, white is a great flower for mixing with other things because it pulls everything together. So when I helped someone with a landscape for a wedding and we found out what the colors of the bride's bouquet were going to be, this was years ago, and she had a lot of blue in it. We just took a whole lot of salvia farinacea and lobelia and filled a whole border with that, mm-hmm. going all the way up one side to kind of make it cooler and more more harmonious, then spots of pink, spots of yellow will stand out amongst that and make it look like more attractive. Mm-hmm. One of the things I would suggest, now you know I'm, I'm an artist, so I, I like doing this sort of thing, is uh, take pictures of your yard or look at the old pictures of your yard that you've had over different times uh, so that you can have um, an idea of what you like and what it's, what it's like different seasons. Mm. Because, you know, it, your yard changes. Things bloom at different times. And you could, like you'll that. find that, well, one thing you may find is that certain flowers, and we've been trying to do this as an ongoing theme, what's, what are plants that give a lot of bloom without a lot of effort? Mm-hmm. And if you chose eight to ten of those plants and had them repeating through your yard, uh, you know, three flowering quince in February, a uh, whole border of daylilies if you happen to like that look. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's certain plants that will do that without much work on your part. Then it sounds like you're kind of like both of us. You find a plant you want and you find a place for it. Well, that can be challenging from a design standpoint. I mean, I have literally walked up and down my border holding a plant, a one-gallon can. Now, my border is like uh, a mile long. It's about 900 (laughs) feet long. I'm serious. It's my long driveway. 
there's no place to put this plant. I've run out of spaces, so I find a space and I put it there and I see how it does. Or you um, put it in a, in, a, in a pot and you put the pot where you think it might like to be. It's not a bad and then, idea. And then you can move it around yeah. if, you, if you don't. And, you know, it, being in a pot for a year or two isn't going to hurt it. Let it sit for a while and see how it does. The most recent plant that I've been collecting for the last decade and uh, finally regrouped all into one area was Alstromeria. Mm. And I still have areas where it's in the ground where I don't want to even try and move it. But I was getting all these different colors, all these different forms. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right, I now have an area. This is because I have ridiculous amounts of space, 30 by 40, where I have all these different alstromerias that I've just been sticking in over time. At first, it was random. Then I found ones that I felt pulled the design together better, just repeating that particular, a little more neutral color, perhaps, to, to kind of balance the stronger, hotter colors of a lot of the alstromerias. That's just one area where I've just used that as the repeating plant. Mm-hmm. That, they're done by July. So make sure there's some things in there that go July, August. In other words, look at those seasons. That's where you might find the calendar on my business website, redwoodbarn.com, with the pictures of things that bloom in particular months and maybe use some of those. So I hope that helps. Okay. So we have um, a couple of uh, things. You already did this. What do you mean you already did that? I did that before you came. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. Yep. Yes, you did. Yep. Thank you for giving us money. Yep. <laughs> that was what it was. <laughs> I did that one. Yeah. And <laughs> then uh, what we usually we talk about one of the radio shows, and today I want to talk about your and my radio shows. Because okay. Because we, we all, both of us, in addition to doing this, do something else. And mine is called That's Life, and it's on Thursdays at 1 o'clock. Pretty broad topic. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I, I've been doing a lot of uh, uh, local authors recently, and, and now I'm doing music from the 70s, from women's music. And so it's Margie Adam and mm-hmm. Judy Fiel and things like that. And then Don has a jazz show, and your yes. show is on. Uh, it's on Tuesdays from 8 to 9 p.m., and it rebroadcasts at various times. You can find mine as a podcast at iTunes or your favorite uh, podcast directory. Mm-hmm. It's called Jazz After Dark. Or nowadays, if you go to those directories and type KDRT, mm-hmm. a bunch of shows will come up. Yeah, and they're trying to bit, podcast yeah, all, of our, all of our shows. Go to playerfm.com yeah. or some of the others. So okay. I did a show this week of all the music of Hoagie Carmichael. Oh, cool. Yep. When are you going to do Hootie and the Blowfish? <laughs> <laughs> No, they've got a new album it's out. Not. It's called Imperfect Circle. It's and it's not jazz. It's not jazz. Not no, it's jazz. not. It's not jazz. Okay, from That's a fa- good music. Facebook okay. question that came in. I don't know if I gave you this one. My Christmas cactus. You know what Christmas cactus are. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing as an Easter cactus. It no, just blues at a different uh, time. Nope, nope, nope. That's incorrect. <laughs> different species. There are Christmas cactus and there are Easter cactus. They are both Schlumbergeras. Yeah, I'd love to say that again. Schlumbergeras. Formerly <laughs> classed as zygocactus in the case of the Christmas and Thanksgiving cactus, and, and then the Schlumbergera in the case of the Easter cactus. If you look at them side by side, which is hard to do because they don't bloom at the same time, if you look at pictures of them side by side, of the flower. you'll see the structure of the Easter cactus is slightly different than the structure of the Christmas cactus. Of the flower. But these are tropical epiphytic cactus. What's Those are three mean? words that don't commonly go together. Tropical, of course, these come from Brazil, I think. And the parts of Brazil that they come from are, they never frost. Uh, epiphytic means they grow up in the rainforesty parts of the tree, not on the ground. They oh, live in the branches. They br- live in the branches and the, the leaf mold and stuff that accumulates there. They do vary a little bit. There are several species, and they do vary a bit in how cold tolerant they are. Generally speaking, in our area, USDA Zone 9, your Christmas cactus can be outside as long as it's in a sheltered location. It's about as hardy as a jade plant. So it could be up against 
the house and would be okay there. But a lot of people leave them outside and then bring them in around oh, Halloween and they're already initiating buds and they enjoy the blooms indoors in a bright location and they put them back outside after any danger of frost is passed. The question that this person had was, my Christmas cactus is green but has not bloomed in two years. It's in my kitchen without sunlight. Well, that'll do it. Um, I have to assume she has some light because it's been alive for two years in the kitchen. So but she said without sunlight. Without sunlight. That, that, that means nothing direct. Yeah, presumably. Uh, probably there's a window, though. We'll, we'll go on the assumption that there's a window. But the thing is that the blooming of Christmas cactus is, is a photoperiod and temperature-related phenomenon. Oh, boy, like, you're going to have to unpack that statement. Like <laughs> they bloom as the days get shorter, or technically, if you're looking at it from the plant physiology standpoint, as the nights get longer. We call it a short-day plant because it's responding to the decreasing day length. It's actually responding to the increasing night length. And what will break up that photoperiod reaction is any kind of light during the long, dark period. So it's in her kitchen. The long, dark period being every night. Every night. Uh, Okay, so if you come out and you, you, you sneak in there to get a piece of pie at midnight... You just can't pull out. If you're a normal person and your light is on in your kitchen ever in the evening or at mm-hmm. night, th- th- you've undone the, the photoperiod reaction. So the plant will grow fine, but it won't initiate blooms. Uh-huh. So it needs to, and it's also temperature related. So commercial growers know that if they keep the temperature at 68 degrees and carefully control the night length, but just as they do with poinsettias, by just like shrouding over the benches in the greenhouse with black plastic, they'll trigger the bloom in a predictable manner and they'll be able to sell these plants for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and so on and the Easter cactus is on a different cycle. Um, but if you're at home and you've, it doesn't require a grow light or a fluorescent light to undo the photo period. This is right. the key thing. So if you try and do a poinsettia in your kitchen, you can grow it as a house plant, but if it's got lights on at night, it'll never bloom. So you have to, it's best, simplest, is to leave it outside in your covered porch, patio area. They're fine in the shade. They don't need full sun by any means. They're very different than normal non-tropical cactus. And then the naturally decreasing day length will initiate the bloom. And if the temperatures are fairly warm like they are here in the valley, as the days are getting shorter, it'll be perfect. Now, you may be listening to us in a place where it gets too cold for that. So you may need to bring it in earlier, in which case you need to put it in a room that doesn't have a light on at night. And so if it's outside and I have added security lights Could be to problem. my thing, if the security com- lights come on, is that enough to break it? Yeah. yeah. And, and one night... Well, it? it very somewhat. I mean, that's the thing. If it My comes on night goodness. after night. There was, there was a well-known case in our industry of a, um, a poinsettia grower whose neighboring industrial property put in a security light. Oh, no. And that whole back of the greenhouses, the poinsettias didn't bloom. They were not saleable by Christmas. Now, normal poinsettia producers shroud the benches to avoid these problems. They have mm-hmm. machines that drop black plastic over the benches at a certain time of day and lift it back up at a certain time of day. It's all mechanized. Mm. That's why they do that because you can – the light in your greenhouse can be enough to disrupt it and make a less desirable outcome. So if you were like living in an, a, a bright apartment in the city, you yep. could – you could do this if you're really, really, really particular and you put it in a closet and close the door for X number of hours yeah. every single night. Cover it with a bag might be simpler, but yeah. If you remember mm. to do it, a closet might be challenging. I had a, see, the only reason I'm hesitant on that was I had a customer who did that. But then didn't take them out of the Forgot to take it out of the closet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, <laughs> that would kill the plant. Uh, it did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I heard okay. all about it. So we have another email. This is from Arash. Yep says, hi, Don, what are your thoughts on using hummus with our heavy clay soil here in Davis? Do you recommend that approach? Or is it better or maybe no need? 
as a way of loosening the soil to plant herbs, plant bulbs, and other shrubs. So hummus, first of all, H-U-M-M-U-S, all, is the thing check, you eat. Spell check always converts humus to hummus. Uh, it's very amusing. Just as it always Hummus con- is what you eat, right? Yes, humus is what we add to the soil. Just How do you as spell it? Spell check always converts salvia to saliva whenever I'm typing articles, too. <laughs> and I can't get it to stop. So uh, humus just has one M. How do you spell it? H-U-M-U-S. Okay. It's the byproduct of the decomposition of organic material. Um, people who have soil with a high clay content or a lot of silt, which is similar but not as dense, tend to feel that it's hard to grow plants and they want to lighten that soil. And when I first went into the nursery business, we would sell you a bag of planting mix or compost with everything you bought. That was my tie-in sale as a mm-hmm. teenager. He said, you sell them a bag of potting so- planting mix with everything that goes out. And, and then you would turn that into yeah, the soil. We're, the we're soil trained. Front. Did you yeah. need a bag of planting mix to go with that, ma'am? Oh, do I? Oh, yes. We recommend Bandini Azalea mix or whatever it was. It was an automatic tie-in sale. We don't do that because we now know that disrupting the soil web, turning it in, is not good. It breaks it up, breaks up the existing web of mycorrhizae that are already there. And so, and it's also not necessary in most mm-hmm. cases. The things that Arash mentioned here, for example, herbs, bulbs, and other shrubs, our native soil is fine. Uh, don't try and dig it today because it's so muddy that you'll do structural damage. But as soon as it's drained out and you can turn it in such a way that the soil crumbles in your hand, that's all you need to do is just, just dig a hole and plant in the native soil. If you want to increase the organic content, let's say you're planting camellias, azaleas, blueberries, things like that. The long way, long-term way to do that is just keep putting it on the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, just keep adding compost. And on let the, the worms carry it down. Yeah. And uh, if you want to do it faster because you have, say, a new vegetable bed and you really want to get that soil so the water percolates in better, then plant something with tap roots or deep roots like mustard or radishes and then cut them off at the right time of year and let the roots disintegrate and those make those macro pores that help the water penetrate faster. And they create a little area of, of organically amended soil naturally. If you put it on the surface, you put a couple inches of compost any good bagged quality compost stuff you buy, or you can have a tree service dump their grindings on your property, mm-hmm. then it doesn't really matter that much what it is. Mm-hmm. So if you had some shavings and livestock bedding, or if you had a tree taken down, they ground it up and left you all that stuff. Chips. Spread it all around. The arborist wood chips are great. Turning them in is not great because mm-hmm. then they'll tie up nitrogen as they break down, but put them on the surface. Right at the interface of where they are, they may be impeding nitrogen a little bit, but not any further down, not where the roots of plants are. And they'll break down at whatever pace is appropriate to your soil bacterial population, the existing earthworms will come up quickly and, and, and move into them and start working them in. And the soil temperature is a big factor as well. And while they're breaking down, before they do, they'll help retain moisture and act as a mulch. So that's the simplest way to do it. And most plants are best overwhelmingly best in your native soil with just what you dug out of the soil going back into the hole at the time of backfill. All hope right. that makes sense. Does that make lots of sense? Yeah. It does. All right. Yeah, so, so it's, there's a kind a of bunch a change, of... it's kind of a change in thinking, though. So it's hard to get, you know, years ago, we always amended soil. That's true. Yeah. And uh, I had a question about that, you know, because we know that it is disruptive to the soil web. Very casual comment that I haven't um, verified on any of the online research sites uh, from a soil scientist was that disruption lasts a couple of years. So if you turn your vegetable garden one time because you just want a better seed bed or something, you turn a bunch of stuff in and that's the only time you do it and then you just let cover crops do their magic, well, that's fine. A couple of years later, things are back to normal, at least according to this comment. Um, if you do it year after year, 
you're always disrupting it just as the, the mycorrhizae are getting reestablished. Okay, and he's all, always talking about stuff in the ground, yep. and I'm always talking about stuff in the pots. Well, it's the same. So with pots, if I'm planting a new plant and I have new potting soil and everything's going in new, yep. there isn't any structure to, to disrupt, so that's fine. Well, no, they're in there. There's soil bacteria in there, and they're no, but, are, but, but I mean the, the structure is right, the first time. Yeah, now, and so once I've, once I've done it, then I don't have to go in and mess around question. with it comes up though about that we just had this conversation with someone who's going to be planting something in a container probably forever mm-hmm. and i don't remember what it was but it was a small tree probably a citrus or something and her question was do i take this out and replant it periodically i said well you can do that you can do what bonsai growers do take it out trim off the roots a bit freshen the soil put it back in bear in mind though just like in the ground the mm-hmm. organic fraction of your potting soil will be disintegrating. If you've ever had something in a pot mm-hmm. for years and years, the and soil level lower gets lower and, and lower. And you lower. can add stuff on the surface to a container just like in the ground. You can just, but won't you, you be burying the crown? You want to try to be careful not to bury the stem of the plant, and that is possible to do, but generally it's a fairly coarse material that you're putting on the surface. I do this all the time. I do it with the blueberries every mm-hmm. year. I do it, I've taken to doing it with other things. I take a mix of very, very fine bark, mostly compost, a little bit of bark just for the appearance. I turn in some sulfur because my well water is hard. I usually add some organic fertilizer, whatever I've got. Last year it was cottonseed meal because I had a big bag of it. That's somewhat acidic, so that was great. And I just go ahead and put one or two inches on the surface of the several fuchsias that I have in barrels, the blueberries that I have in barrels, all these woodier plants. And while I make an effort not to bury the crown I don't make that big an effort because it's a fairly coarse mulch that I'm using. So I go and I pull it away a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I just augment it that way. And it will. there are worms in there. There's bacteria in there. And they'll just pull right up and start working the new stuff in. People don't think about mulching containers, but it is certainly something you can do. Okay, so this will bring me to my next question because I think I'm going to break your rule. Um, rules are made to be broken. I know. We're going to do I a have, whole show on breaking rules. I have a half-gallon... Uh, half barrel. Uh, half barrel, excuse yeah. me, half barrel. And I had some seedling um, uh, Japanese maples that mm-hmm. came up one year, I, and I carefully... You know, okay, so in that half barrel, I now have six <laughs> young yep. Japanese maples, mm-hmm. and the, the soil has... It's been a couple of years. The soil has now... Hmm, Reduced in level, mm-hmm. so it's about less than halfway up the inside of the pot, mm-hmm. which means there's not very much soil in there for mm-hmm. that thing. So my my thought was when they're dormant in the winter, mm-hmm. I would need to tip it over, pull them out, put, that, yeah. put soil in, well, put that'd them be, back. That'd be something you'd do, if, especially if you want to divide them out and plant them out individually. But it'd make a nice little grove. I mean, oh, it depends, little, depends on your definition of sustainability as to whether you're going to try and keep this as a grove forever, in which case you have a large bonsai. Don, I'm almost seven. 20 years is sufficient. <laughs> there you go. Fine. You can, you can keep, <laughs> keep mulching them. I mean, I would. I would just mulch them. Now, one thing I'm curious about is whether your barrel is rotting out on the bottom. And that's a common phenomenon. When people go into these projects, they mm-hmm. find, oh, these have actually rooted out below the barrel. Oh, no, it's on but, concrete. It's yeah. on the driveway. Okay, good. Yeah. You could mulch an inch at a time with a combination of coarse compost and bark and stuff and watch that settle in, do a little bit more. I'm not concerned about them rotting because I suspect Phytophthora was, is very unlikely to happen in that situation. There's right. a risk. There's yeah. a slight risk, but not much. So, 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 so breaking the rules, yeah. You I'm, can I'm thinking I need like another foot of soil. I wouldn't in do there. that all at once, but you could but, certainly do it but gradually. Eventually, if it went up and uh, uh, up the stems for yep. a foot, would that that would, would go that to kill the it? mountains of Japan? 
and take the leaves that would have naturally fallen around those <laughs> Japanese maples. Okay, now think about this. They would have naturally fallen around them and put a whole layer. How many how many inches of leaves do you think would fall around Japanese maples a in lot. a place where it rains 80 to 100 inches yeah, of rain a, a year? Lot. So that kind of stuff disintegrating around them is not going to be a big issue. Okay. Uh, the concern will be, as you're watering in the summer, the risk of Phytophthora. But it's a fairly coarse material that you're putting around them. Break the rule and do it. I will. There we go. And that'll be a lot easier than hiring sure kids to come out and, <laughs> and wrestle with that yeah, thing. Yeah, no, you can't keep six Japanese maples in the same barrel for 50 years, but you could have a lovely little miniature oh, grove yeah. for quite a long time. It's right in front of my yeah. in front of my. Fall driveway. color is great. The fall it's color beautiful. on my Japanese maples right now is spectacular. They're oh, the last thing done. colors up. Yep. yep. Okay. They were lovely reds. Okay. Um, a bunch of little questions. One says, I'm looking for a ground, a low-growing ground cover like Creeping Thyme, but something that's a California native. And the answer is there isn't one. Um, there really isn't. There's no, nothing that meets the, the mat-forming growth habit that's just like thyme that's native and suitable here in the Sacramento Valley. Although we did talk about mm, California fuchsia, the flat forms of those could be used. You could use some of the low-growing forms of Achillea, the yarrows that are that are creeping thyme, creeping type plants. Uh, this is a problem. When, when, you, when you limit yourself to natives, sometimes there just isn't one that meets your exact criteria. So when they're saying ground cover, yeah. and you were talking about things that are bushes. Yes, I know. How do you have a ground cover bush? There's some very flat growing forms of California fuchsia. There are some that really hug the ground. Zoshneria. Yeah, they're only like six inches tall. Okay. It was still taller than she wanted. So. What about the rosemaries? Do we have native rosemaries? No, there's a Mediterranean plants. Oh. There's a lot of choices from the Mediterranean. Yeah. There are many choices from the Mediterranean, but she wanted a California native. Oh, so. right. Yeah, anyone okay. out there thinks of one? davisgardenshow at gmail.com. I'll pass it along. Okay. Um, Frost was in the forecast. Do we need to cover our camellias and azaleas? Aurelias? None of me? the above. No, this is just an example of the many things that people ask me about. And, um, and we didn't really have very much frost. Finally took out my coleus. That was about as cold as we got. Some of them are still alive, so that means we were about 30 degrees, and that's mm -hmm. not enough to worry about. Here's a good rule of thumb. If the Western Garden Book lists the plant as hardy for this zone, you really don't need to worry about it. Okay. In terms of frost, young citrus, uh, things you shouldn't really be growing like bougainvilleas, yeah, there's your issue, avocados. I'm looking for a citrus tree that can be kept in a container on a second-floor balcony. Mm -hmm. Mostly I want the flowers for their fragrance. Is there a flowering orange? There there is, and this is what, perhaps what we'll end the show with because we've only got a couple of minutes left. There are some citrus that are grown just for the blooms, and the fruit is sour or not eaten or has limited uses. One of them is called, an attractive name, bouquet de fleurs. Hmm. It has very large flowers that are super fragrant. I've seen this one. Shinodo is the myrtle leaf citrus, which sometimes comes in um, bonsai assortments in nurseries. little compact plant that's great for containers. Although I think one of the best for a container for the flowers is the kumquat, even if you don't eat the fruit, because the flowers are in the summer. All the other mm -hmm. citrus we mm -hmm. talked about are spring blooming for a fairly short interval. Kumquats bloom. It's an attractive, dense plant, you know, nice canopy, nice tight growth habit. The fruit is attractive. Some people eat it. Some people don't, but it's edible. It's, it's a sweet tart. It's not bitter like some of the citrus are. And the flowers are over a long period in the summertime, and they're very, very cold hardy, so very amenable to containers. So an attractive plant that has a nice bonus. And if you don't have to have a citrus, you can go for the Philadelphus, which is called mock orange. Oh, and it has the, the scent of the orange, but it doesn't make fruit. Well, things, it's gorgeous. Things called mock orange. I mean, there's the Mexican mock orange, which is choisia, which is a nice container plant, actually, and has another another one that has a scent like a lemon blossom. And even pittosporum, I can't imagine growing it in a container on a balcony, but that's because be yeah. it's so common in California, but yeah. it would work. So, yeah, there yeah. are, but there are citrus that are grown especially just for the flowers, for the fragrant blossom. And don't forget lemon verbena. 
Well, there's lots of other things that'll give you fragrance. Yeah, we yeah. can. That'll be a great topic. Let's for do another that for show. another show. Yes. Yeah. Balcony fragrant flowers for your balcony. I like you that. You got questions? Send them to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter here at KDRT LP ninety five point seven in Davis, California.